Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. One of my winter projects at home has been replacing light switches and electrical outlets. We live in an old house and they're all very ugly and very beat up and the cord just falls out of the outlet when you plug it in. And I can confirm from experience that Zach's illustration is correct. Uh, there have been a couple times that I've gone to turn light switches on and guess what? They don't work because I didn't hook something up the right way. So, uh, but I've learned from experience. I'm almost as good with electrical stuff as Mark Heinzman. So, uh, feel free to reach out to either one of us, uh, if you have electrical issues in your home. Now, I'm going to guess that before today, you have never heard an entire sermon dedicated to King Hosea of Israel, who is not to be confused with Hosea the prophet. There's really only about 10 verses dedicated to Hosea in the book of 2 Kings. And on a purely individual level, Hosea does not come across as all that remarkable. Yeah, he was a royal failure, but there's no particularly spectacular personal failing that sets Hosea apart from many other bad kings. However, the one thing that does make Hosea different from all the other royal failures in the northern kingdom of Israel is that right or wrong, fair or unfair, Hosea reigned at a particularly significant time. Hosea was on the throne during one of the greatest disasters in the entire Old Testament. And that disaster takes place in 2 Kings chapter 17, and it is the fall of Israel. So open up to 2 Kings 17. Feel free to follow along here in the room and at home as well. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the privilege, the joy, the opportunity to come and worship you. Lord, we pray for safety. We pray for health uh, as we do this. But ultimately, what matters even more than safety, what matters even more than health, is that you are glorified today. And so I pray that you would help us to glorify you uh, with what we say and what we do and how we say it and how we do it in this time that we have together. And Lord, thank you that we can pray to you, that we have a hearing with you, that we can approach your throne with confidence because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Thank you that we can speak to the one true God of the universe and know that you hear us. Uh, Even though we are small, even though we are insignificant, even though we are unremarkable in the eyes of many in this world, we can approach you with confidence because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And for that, we simply thank you. Uh, That is awe-inspiring to think about. And Lord, again, thank you for this time we have together this morning. I pray it's honoring to you, that it's beneficial for us as we read from these parts of your word that we don't always go to on our own. I pray that you would use even these portions of your word to build us up in faith and love and worship and obedience, and more than anything, to build us up in our knowledge of you. Because the better we know you, how can we not worship you? Again, we love you, we praise you, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, roughly 200 years have passed between the events we read about in last week's sermon, The Kingdom Divided, and the events that we read about today, the fall of Israel. After Solomon's death, the nation of Israel split in two under two different men. You had Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And this division of the kingdom ultimately was a form of God's judgment on Solomon for his sin of idolatry. Now, ironically, but also unsurprisingly, Jeroboam and Rehoboam fall into the same trap. They prove to be idolaters, too, just like Solomon before them. But this morning, we focus our attention on what happened in the northern kingdom, where things got progressively uglier with every passing generation. After Jeroboam died, Israel continued hard and fast down the slippery slope of wickedness. Just about every single king they had was evil. One king divided Israel even further than it already was. Ahab was horrible. For more details on him, you can listen to our sermon series on Elijah from last year. A king named Jehu showed some promise for a few moments, but he ultimately failed as well. Jehoahaz stunk. Jehoash was awful. Jeroboam II was just as bad as Jeroboam I, because as we all know, the sequel is never as good as the original. Zechariah reigned for six months. Shalom reigned for one month. One king reigned for only a week. It became common for a king's time on the throne to end, not when he died of old age, but when he was assassinated by an enemy. And then, as if there isn't enough stress and chaos within Israel, a new empire begins to arise from without. The nation of Assyria begins to breathe down Israel's neck. So by the time Hosea takes the throne after assassinating his predecessor, the king of Assyria starts to flex his muscles. Throughout the book of Judges, before Israel had kings and long before the nation was divided, the moral state of God's people steadily declined. If you go home this afternoon and read the book of Judges, by the time you get to the end, you will find some of the most disturbing events in all of Israel's history. And in the closing chapters of that book, there's a phrase that gets repeated several times. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, the same thing is happening again. But this time there is a king in Israel. Kings were supposed to stop this from happening. Kings were supposed to be part of the solution to keep Israel from sliding down this moral slope of depravity. But they have a king now. And they're still declining. And the fact that the king is the one leading the charge... The king is the one encouraging the people to follow him makes that sin that much more perverse. 
So Solomon took the first step down the slippery slope of kings doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then by the time we get to Hosea, some 200 years later, the northern kingdom is at the bottom of the ditch. And that's when we start reading 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. At this point, Samaria had become the capital city of Israel. And Hosea did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut Hosea up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years, he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. So again, in the few verses that we have about him, There's nothing overly remarkable about Hosea as an individual. Verse 2 is a little bit interesting. We're not sure exactly what it means, but maybe, relatively speaking, Hosea could have been worse. You know, minus the whole assassinating his predecessor thing. And looking to Egypt for help, well, that was definitely a bad idea. God had made his thoughts about Egypt clear back in a little series of events called the Exodus. But in a sense, Hosea, while he was certainly no choir boy, he was really just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He certainly did not help matters, but he also wasn't that much worse than all the other bad kings who came before him. And the truth is that the course of events leading to the disaster of 2 Kings 17 was put into motion long before Hosea ever took the throne. But still, Hosea must be considered, even if by default, a royal failure. Fair or unfair, Hosea is remembered as the man in charge when Israel falls. And his people are exiled to a foreign land. Now, how could this happen? Why did this happen? Better yet, how and why would God allow this to happen to his people? I mean, didn't God choose the people of Israel by his grace? Didn't he free them from Egypt by his power? And didn't he faithfully promise them this land? Didn't God love them? Well, yeah, all those things are true. 
But there is a reason for how and why God allowed Israel to fall. And we get the answer in the following verses. Picking up in verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. I find verse 9 amusing, as if they can somehow keep a secret from God. He's the master of the universe. He sees everything. He knows everything. They think that they can hide this? Well, they can't. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord, their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. In other words, the Israelites worshipped everyone and everything except God. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So if there's one word that can sum up why God allowed the northern kingdom to fall, that word is this. No. The word is idolatry. Idolatry. God warned Israel about the consequences of idolatry in his law. The covenant that they had agreed to. It's the very first of the Ten Commandments after the Israelites were led out of slavery in Egypt. It's the single biggest temptation God warned them about as they entered the promised land. It was the sort of sin that would get them kicked out of the promised land. And on top of that, God repeatedly, patiently, and graciously warned his people through the words of the prophets. 
At the time of 2 Kings 17, prophets like Hosea and Amos and Micah were around. The prophet Isaiah said that all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. In Isaiah chapter 44, we read the ridiculousness of taking a piece of wood, cutting it in half, using part of it to build a fire, and then worshiping the other half of it. And Isaiah says, do you not realize how ridiculous this is? Do you not realize how insane this makes you look, that you're worshiping this piece of wood, this lifeless object? The Israelites should have known better. They knew that only one God, the one true God, demanded and deserved their worship. They knew this. But they did not listen. They were stubborn. They did not believe. They despised God. They abandoned God. They provoked God. And God used So that's how the kingdom of Israel ends. The year was 722 B.C. Now some Israelites would eventually return, but the nation would never be the same. It's also worth mentioning that not every single one of God's people despised and abandoned and provoked God. There would be a faithful and repentant remnant that didn't follow their wicked kings, their wicked countrymen, and their wicked neighbors into their most heinous sins. And you know, since we haven't mentioned them in a while, what about the kingdom of Judah in the south? What's going on down there? Well, Judah should not get too cocky as they watch their rivals to the north suffer. You'll see why in the weeks ahead. Now, as we've mentioned throughout this sermon series, there's an intrinsic value to Christians, people of Scripture, having a better grasp of biblical history. And that includes the often more confusing, more foreign, and more intimidating parts of the Old Testament, the parts that we're reading right now. But practically speaking, what's the big takeaway from a text like this? What's the big lesson for today? What lessons might the fall of Israel back then teach Christians now? Well, while Hosea was our royal failure for the morning, the truth is he's not the main focus of this sermon. Our takeaway doesn't really come from him. He's kind of more of just a jumping off point. As we've discussed, in some ways, Hosea is just another name, albeit the unlucky last name, on a long list of royal failures. So if our biggest takeaway this morning doesn't come from Hosea, then what exactly is it? Well, it comes from a word we've used a lot over the past few weeks. We've used it a lot today. And we'll use it a lot in the next few weeks. That word is idolatry. Idolatry. What exactly is idolatry anyway? 
We throw the word around quite a bit, especially when we're in the Old Testament. But what does idolatry really mean? Well, in short, idolatry is eternal trust in, core loyalty to, or heartfelt worship of anything that is not God. Eternal trust in, core loyalty to, or heartfelt worship of anything that is not God. Now, why is idolatry such a big deal? Is God an egomaniac desperate for validation to feel good about himself? Is God an oversensitive nag who gets needlessly offended when he doesn't get enough credit? Is God an insecure narcissist who needs people to constantly talk him up? No. Idolatry is a problem because God deserves our worship. And why does God deserve our worship? Well, if nothing else, because he created us. We would not. We could not. We cannot exist without him. And because God made us, because we owe our very existence to him, then giving our eternal trust, our core loyalty, our heartfelt worship that he alone deserves to anyone or anything else is an injustice. It's a rebellion. It's an act of robbery. The Bible illustrates the atrocity of idolatry in many ways. For example, in Psalm 29, starting in verse 1, we read, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I think the most important word in that passage we just read is due. D-U-E. Glory is due him. We're not encouraged to glorify God if and when we think he deserves it. Like giving a dog a bone when he sits or rolls over or does a trick. We are commanded to glorify God because it is fitting and right to do so. That glory is due him. We owe it to him. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I don't think that needs much commentary. And then Psalm 115, perhaps one of the most famous passages on idolatry, starting in verse 4. God says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That last verse that we just read, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. 
That might be the most haunting verse in the Bible when it comes to idolatry. We saw the same idea in 2 Kings 17, verse 15, when God said, They went after false idols and became false. The point is that idolatry doesn't just insult God. Idolatry degrades us. When we fail to worship the author of life, we become lifeless. When we worship perishable things, we set ourselves up to perish along with them. When we worship anything other than the God who made us, we miss out on the greatest calling, the greatest purpose, and even the greatest joy of human existence. Now, of course, we're likely not tempted to worship the exact same kind of idols we read about in Scripture. We're probably not tempted to worship objects made of wood or stone or silver or gold that represent pagan deities. But that doesn't mean that idols are not still around. Martin Luther defined idolatry this way. He says, A God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good, and in which we find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in the thing with your whole heart. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends. So by that definition, an idol can take many forms, can it? Not just wood or stone or silver or gold. An idol can be money. An idol can be sex. An idol can be power. An idol can be approval. An idol can be freedom. An idol can be family. An idol can be country. You can even be your own idol when you really think about it. There's no escaping idols. In this fallen world, theologian John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. Theologian Bob Dylan wrote that everybody's got to serve somebody. Idolatry is not going away. Idolatry first appeared in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve put their eternal trust in, gave their core loyalty to, and offered heartfelt worship to something that was not God. Maybe it was the serpent. Maybe it was the fruit. Maybe it was themselves. But whatever it was, it wasn't God. And since then, every man, woman, and child, from Israel to Judah, king to servant, then and now, has fallen into the same idolatrous trap. We deserve God's judgment for that. Not just in the form of a temporary exile from land, kingdom, or nation, but permanent exile from God himself. When there is no greater injustice in the world than robbing God of his glory, we deserve no greater punishment than eternal separation from him.
But there is one person who hasn't committed idolatry, though it was not for lack of opportunity. In Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan, much the way Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Satan tempts Jesus three separate times, and he fails each time. But after the third attempt, Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus, fully God, could not sin. And Jesus, fully man, did not sin. Jesus reversed the curse that plagued Israel, plagued Judah, and plagues all mankind by doing what no man before him or after him could ever do. He put his eternal trust in, gave his core loyalty to, and offered heartfelt worship of God and God alone to perfection. So it is only by faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that false and lifeless idolaters like us can be reconciled to the God who we too have despised, abandoned, and provoked. False and lifeless idolaters can be given true life by God's grace. False and lifeless idolaters can be forgiven, enabled, and restored to doing what we were created to do. To worship the Lord our God and serve him only. Jesus did not fail in that regard. And no one who follows Jesus, no one who trusts in, believes in, worships Jesus, will be a failure either. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you that you are the one true God. And Lord, glory is due you. We don't just glorify you when we feel like it. We don't just glorify you when we think you've earned it because you've blessed us enough or given us enough or taken care of us enough. Glory is due you at all times, every moment, from every tongue and every person. And so, Lord, we glorify you. We praise you. We know, we acknowledge, we confess that we haven't always done that. Every single one of us in this room has been guilty of worshiping something besides you at some point. Every single one of us has given our loyalty to, put our trust in something that isn't you. And so, Lord, we repent of that sin. And we ask that you forgive us that you save us, that you redeem us by your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've done exactly that. And Lord, knowing that we are saved, I pray that we would offer you the worship you deserve, that we would leave idols behind, that we would stop giving loyalty and praise and honor to things that don't deserve it, but rather reserve that honor and that loyalty and that praise for you because you're the only one who truly deserves it. 
Thank you that you are kind, that you are merciful, that you are gracious to sinners. Thank you that you have given us a way out of this curse, this sin, this plague that we have all been subject to from the very beginning. And Lord, I pray that we would turn to you in confidence, turn to you in humility, turn to you in hope, Turn to your promises to save us and redeem us through your son, Jesus Christ, the one man who has not committed the sin that we all have committed. So, Lord, again, help us worship you and you alone. Help us serve you and you only. Help us recover what it is that you made us for, to offer you worship and you alone at all times with every breath. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.